It is deceptively easy for us to talk about God, sing about God, and even claim to be serving God, all while ignoring His Word. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt, delivered weekly. As always, you can find thousands of gospel-centered and free resources at Radical.net. Well, in this new message from Isaiah chapter 66, David Platt reminds us that God's Word should cause us to stand in awe. We ought to respond to Scripture by submitting to and delighting in the One who is sovereign over us. Here's David Platt with a sermon titled, Tremble at His Word, from Isaiah 66. If you uh, have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Isaiah chapter 66. And if, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one sitting in the seat right next to you, kind of in between the seats. So I invite you to find Isaiah chapter 66. Two particular pictures from God's Word have come to my mind. The first picture is trembling at God's Word. And the second picture is taking on the world. So how does God want McLean to move forward in the days to come. Two things I know. One, he wants this church to tremble at his word. And two, he wants this church to take on the world. And my aim in the next couple weeks is to show you that I'm just making this up. Like, this is what God has said in his word. So this week, I hope to show you God's call for this church to tremble at his word. And then, Lord willing, next week to show you God's call for this church to take on the world. So let's start with the first, trembling at the word in Isaiah 66. And let me, let me just start by saying the obvious, by God's grace, this is obviously not a new emphasis in this church. By God's grace, this is and has been a Bible church built on God's word. At the same time, this is something this church can never assume and can never, ever forget. Let me show this to you in Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter in the book of Isaiah. I invite you to follow along with me as I read the first four verses. This is God's word to his people. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. He who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. These have chosen their ways and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. These are sobering words from God to his people, and we won't have time this morning to dive into these verses word by word, phrase by phrase, but don't miss the overall point. Notice 
in this text what the people of God had mastered. God's people had mastered religion. They'd mastered the art of worship. They knew how to offer sacrifices and say prayers. They knew how to run the routine to participate in the show. They had mastered religion. But note what they had missed. God's people had mastered religion, but they had missed reverence and respect for God's word. Verse four, when I call, no one answers. When I speak, no one listens. In fact, they do the exact opposite of what I say. They do what is evil in my eyes. So is that possible? Is it possible to master religion, yet miss reverence and respect for God's word? Absolutely, it's possible. It was possible then, and it's possible today. It is a temptation every single week for any one of us in this room, pastor, church member, anybody, to come in here and just go through a routine. We have mastered the art of worship in our day. We can do this deal in our sleep, especially if we've been, we've been involved in the church for a while. We can sing the songs. We can listen to the sermon. We can say the prayers. I mean, think about it. How easy is it for someone on stage just to say, okay, let's bow our heads and pray. So everybody closes their eyes, and all of a sudden, within seconds, all kinds of minds can be wandering in all kinds of different directions. I know I do this. I'm guessing I'm not alone. Somebody can be praying up here and hundreds, even thousands of people can be thinking hundreds or thousands of different things. Details of our day, what we're gonna do after the service, just a myriad of thoughts around the room. And in a matter of seconds, if we're not careful, there can be this perfunctory prayer exercise going on in this room while I just imagine all of heaven is shouting, do you realize who you're talking to? You're talking to God, the creator of the earth, Isaiah 66, 1, whose throne is in the heavens. You're talking to the one who's upholding Mars right now. So don't let your minds wander. Right? Do you realize what you're doing? Prayer is not perfunctory. Do we realize Got to open our eyes to the subtly dangerous temptation we face every single week to turn the worship of God into monotonous religious motion that totally misses the point. And here's the added danger. So in a time of transition like this, and McLean looking toward the future, because if this church isn't careful, this church can get consumed with keeping the motion going. I mean, what kind of personality in the future is going to fill Lon's shoes? How are we going to keep the programs running and the crowds coming? But hear this, McLean Bible Church, those are not the questions God is most concerned about in this church. He's not concerned with keeping the program running and the crowds coming. He's not concerned with the future with what kind of personality will fill Lon's shoes. He's concerned about one thing. He's looking for one thing, Isaiah 66 says, a people who are humble and contrite in spirit and they tremble at his word. Amen. He, God does not want a people who are trite in his worship. He wants a people who tremble at his word. That's literally the word in Isaiah 66. They tremble. Verse 2, the one who trembles at my word. That's who I'm looking for. Verse 5, which we didn't read. Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. 
That, that word tremble is used in places like Ezra chapter nine, verse four, Ezra chapter 10, verse three, talking about when the people of God heard the word of God, they trembled at it. And then the next book, Nehemiah, so you gotta see this, turn me over to Nehemiah. Take, take a left in your Bible, uh, use table of contents if you need to, but go to Nehemiah chapter eight. You've got to see this. And so while you're turning there, so Nehemiah chapter eight, while you're finding that passage, let me, let me just make a statement here. You look throughout the history of God's people, from Old Testament to New Testament to 2,000 years of church history, you will see moments in the history of God's people where God has moved in might and power in unusual ways and inevitably in every time you see God moving in particular might and power among his people, it has always been accompanied by a heightened sense of reverence and respect for the word of God. God moves in might and power among his people when they stand in awe of his word. Let me show you this in Nehemiah. So the first seven chapters of this book recount the rebuilding of the walls around the city of Jerusalem. But then after the walls have been rebuilt, the people need to be rebuilt, so to speak, renewed. And Nehemiah 8 is the start of that story. I want you to see how it starts. Follow along with me in verse one and just picture the scene, almost like if this were happening in this room. Imagine this. Verse one says, all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So they told Ezra, bring out God's word. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And then, listen to this, he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Did you catch that? From early morning until midday. Six hours, eight hours. He just read from the book. He didn't even preach it. He just read it. And what were all the people doing? Just kind of looking around or checking their phones. They didn't have phones, but whatever they would have done, equivalent, like, no, they were attentive for hours, just listening to the word all day long. They're just listening. Keep going. Verse four says, Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Beside him stood a bunch of guys, we can't pronounce their names. Uh, but now, now watch this, watch this. Verse five, imagine this. Ezra, so just imagine the scene, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, watch this, all the people stood, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, amen, amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Imagine that scene. All Ezra did was he opened the book. He didn't say a thing. Not even a like, funny joke to start. He just opened the book. All of a sudden, everybody stands up. The people start lifting their hands and shouting out, amen, amen. And bow down and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. All Ezra did was open the book. Now, here's the deal. Fast forward to 1,500 years to the people of God today, church in our culture. Let me ask you a question. 
As God's people today, what do we usually associate those sorts of actions with in worship? Music, right? Standing, raising hands, shouting out. These are responses we have today in musical worship. All it takes today is the strum of a guitar, note, playing, drum, start. We're on our feet. We start raising our hands. We shout. If we're really extreme, maybe we bow down with our face on the ground. So is that bad? No, not at all. When you get to Nehemiah chapter 12, you say a powerful service of musical worship. That's not bad at all. But here's what I wonder. What would it be like in our day if all it took was God's word to elicit that kind of response in us? What if it didn't require a guitar? It just required the word of God that caused us to stand and shout out amen, amen, and lift our hands in the air? What if the word alone just brought us to our knees before God, trembling? This is an awesome scene. You look at the rest of this passage, you see God's word just igniting God's worship. People are brought to tears in conviction over their sin, and they start celebrating God's cleansing of their sin. This text is a powerful picture of how the word of God inspires the worship of God. But all of that only happens when God's people fear and revere and tremble at his word. Amen. So, in light of this picture in God's word in Isaiah, Ezra, and Nehemiah, I want to do something a little different in the next few minutes we have together. Uh, something that actually makes me uncomfortable on a variety of different levels. Uh, but I want to take a risk in order to just encourage you to be a people who tremble at God's word. So if you could take your Bible, I want to invite you to turn me over to Romans chapter 1, the New Testament, Romans chapter 1. And I want to, I want to do something just a little different for the rest of our time in the word. I just want to invite you to worship through the word. Wherever you are, here in this room, at whatever campus you might be on, even watching online, in the next few minutes, I just want to invite you to let God, through his word, lead you, I pray, to tremble before him. Maybe to stand in awe, literally to stand if the Lord leads you to do so, maybe to shout, maybe to raise your hand, maybe even to bow down with your face to the ground. I just want to invite you for the next few minutes to worship God through his word. Just let the word do the work. Romans chapter one. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in his holy scriptures regarding his son who has to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve with my whole heart and preach in the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times. And I pray that now, at last, by God's will, the way may be open for me to come to you. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the other Gentiles. For I'm obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God has been revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth of God by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Even their, women, even, even their men abandoned natural relations with women. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, therefore, have no excuse. You have passed judgment on them. For whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will give to each person according to what he has done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for everyone who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, for the, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves. Since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their conscience is also bearing witness, their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. This will take place in the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you have been instructed by the law, if you're convinced that you're a guide for the blind, a light for those in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others do not teach yourself. You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You say that people should not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? 
You abhor idols. Do you, do, you, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you've become as though you've not been circumcised. If those who are not circumcised physically keep their law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? The one who's not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law will continue who, even though you have the written, even though you have circumcision, don't, don't have the written code. Such a man's praise is not for men, but from God. A man is not a Jew if he is one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit. Such a man's praise is not for men, but from God. What advantage then is there in, in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision? Well, much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. But what if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. Just as it's written, so you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say then? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument, certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? But someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, then why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported in saying, and some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What should we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their, their throats are open groves, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, the poison of vipers is on their lips, their feet are switched to shed blood, and ruin and misery mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth is silenced and the whole world is held accountable to God. No one, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known. And this righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God has presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice in the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. On what principle? That of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there's only one God who will judge the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through that same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who doesn't work, but who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, 
is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying Abraham's faith was credited him as righteousness. Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he's the father of all who believe and have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. And he's the father of the circumcised. who not only are circumcised physically, but who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be the heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value, and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Not only to those who are the law, but those who are the faith of Abraham. As it's written, I've made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom we believe, the God who gives life to the dead and who calls things that are not as though they were. You see, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but he was strengthened in his faith and he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. And the words it was credited to him were not written for him alone, but for us to whom God accredits righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have gained access by grace into this faith in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, we rejoice in suffering. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin is not taken into account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many die by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to the many? Again, the gift of God is not like the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For justice through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. 
The law was added so the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, grace might reign in righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we've been united with him like this in his death, we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who's died has been free from sin. So if, if we died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. And the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way then, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires and do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness, for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law, you are under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as a slave, you're slaves to the one who you obey, whether you're slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obey the form of teaching to which you're entrusted. You've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness. I put this in human terms because you are weak in your natural selves. Just as you used to offer the parts of your body in slavery to impurity and ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer them in slavery to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now that you've been set free from sin and become slaves to righteousness, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do not know, brothers. From speaking to know the law, the law has authority over man only as long as he lives. For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she's called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's not an adulteress even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ in order that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not know what... Sin was except through the law. For I would not know what coveting really was. The law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. When the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death to me through what was good so that through the commandment sin might become utterly sinful. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. What I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, 
I agree the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I would do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. For I know that nothing good lives in me. That is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work within the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So myself and my mind, I'm a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin and sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. Those who live according to the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death. The mind controlled by the spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the spirit. If the spirit of God lives in you, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it's not of the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. You received a spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, we are heirs. Heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we may share in his sufferings in order that one day we're going to share in his glory. I consider our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, and hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its present bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, is in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for sometimes, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groans that words can't even express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit is interceding for the saints in accordance with God's will. And we know that in all things, in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also along with him graciously give us 
all things. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is he that condemns Christ Jesus, who died more than that, was raised to life, and is at the right hand of God interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever, ever, ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to God for his word. Praise God. word is so good. This word is worthy of our trembling and our awe. I want to invite you to sit down for just a minute and uh, I want to be really careful. Um, before anybody thinks it's any big deal for me or anybody else to quote a few chapters of scripture, I, I just want to remind, no, I want to remind you, there are children in Afghanistan right now attending Muslim schools where by the time they're 13 or 14 years old, they will memorize the entire Quran. And what's more, many of those children speak different languages, Urdu maybe. When they come to these schools, they memorize the Quran in Arabic because that's the original language it was written in. So, can you imagine, like, what, what, if, what if it was a requirement in children's and student ministries at McLean to memorize the entire New Testament in Greek? And then after you finish that task, uh, you're just getting started, because you got the whole Old Testament in Hebrew. <laughs> you say, well, that's ridiculous, like, well, you couldn't even do that in English. And then verse here or there, like, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, if they are that committed to learning the words of a false God, Amen. then what does it say about you and I in this room who hold the word of the one and only true God? This, it's not me speaking, this is God speaking. He says this, is the one upon whom I look. God says to his people, God's saying to this church, I'm looking for people who are humble and contrite in spirit and tremble at my word. So I challenge you, McLean Bible Church, be that kind of people. As McLean moves together forward, do it trembling at his word 
every step of the way. Amen. Will you pray with me? Amen. Dear God, creator of the heavens whose footstool is the earth, We praise you for your word. Thank you for not leaving us in the dark, trying to figure out who you are. We praise you for making reconciliation, forgiveness, peace with you possible through Jesus Christ, your word in the flesh. And so we pray. I pray for my life. I pray for brothers and sisters around this room. I pray for this church. Make us people who tremble at your word. May it not be said in our day that you spoke and we didn't listen. May we said that you spoke and we trembled before you. And we obeyed your word. May that be the commentary on our lives. May that be the commentary on this church until you return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us today on Radical with David Platt. As always, you can find thousands of free gospel-equipping resources at Radical.net. And don't forget to subscribe to our brand new daily podcast, Pray the Word with David Platt. It's now available through iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Thank you so much to all those who have already subscribed, rated, and reviewed. It is so helpful for helping us grow this new podcast. So thank you. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. Until next time, join us over at Radical.net.